want to say a, uh, thanks Grace, a particular word of welcome and greeting to those of you who are new here this morning, whether you're here in person or online. Thanks so much for being here this morning. My name is Alex. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you're joining us here uh, for the first time, especially if this is your first time ever or a long time in a church setting. We have been hoping you make your way here some Sunday morning. What we're all about is really simple, connect people to God, to each other, engage our world for good, hope experience a little all those things here this morning. It's a great time to join us. This is week one of a brand new series called Counterculture for the Common Good. And uh, here's what we're getting at. For the last 2,000 years, uh, churches have sprung up all around the world, and they've, we've been doing what Jesus called us to do, which is to form something of a counterculture that serves the common good. Now, sometimes the communities around them thought they were weird. Then they were weird. Sometimes the communities around them misunderstood them, didn't understand what they were about, didn't understand kind of what, what they were doing and why they were doing it. And sometimes the communities around them hated them and tried to kill them. And if we're honest, sometimes the Christian communities were stupid. They picked the wrong fights, did the wrong things. Sometimes a, a, a big personality hijacked the church and tried to make it into some sort of agenda that was far from Jesus and very far from what Jesus intended for the church. So sometimes Christian communities were stupid, sometimes they picked the wrong fights, but sometimes those Christian communities were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. And sometimes the communities around them understood exactly what they were doing. And sometimes in the midst of all that, the, the, the people around those communities, around those churches, decided they didn't like them. In fact, they hated them. They were against who they were, what they were about, and especially who they worshipped. So here's what we're going to get at this, uh, for the next few weeks. The, the truth of the matter is this. You cannot follow Jesus and have your life look like everyone else around you. You cannot follow Jesus and have your life look exactly like everyone else's around you. To follow Jesus means... You are going to be in conflict with some part of the cultural pressures around you. Stuff you see in movies, TV, reading books, uh, the, what's normal on your social media news feed. To be a Jesus follower means something about your life is going to look different than a world around you. Not that that means that there's nothing good around us or that our lives don't uh, resonate. There's certainly ways that the Jesus way intersects with other people's uh, lives and preferences and decisions they make. There's ways that there's resonance with the Jesus way and people outside the Jesus way. But you cannot follow Jesus and have your life look like everyone else is around you. Now, part of what's confusing about that is there's a lot of different subcultures and countercultures in the world, right? There are political subcultures and countercultures. There's whole streams of music and art that set themselves up as a counterculture or a sub-sub-subculture to the counterculture, right? There's clothing lines and there's stores and there's all these sort of streams, right? All these sort of cultures and subcultures, maybe you've participated in some of those sort of subcultures or anti-mainstream cultures, or maybe you've known someone that sort of found their people in one of those sort of anti-mainstream cultures, right? You've been, you know people like a cousin or a friend who kind of found their niche in something that was sort of off the beaten path. So we got a whole, so we have this very complicated situation, right? So you have culture, which is not one monolithic thing. There's lots of layers to it, lots of different wrinkles to it. There's sort of this mainstream American culture. And then you've got subcultures and countercultures all in operation around it, right here in our own little country, right here in our own state, right here in Chatham County, right? All these different cultures and subcultures. So the question is this, what's distinctive about a Christian subculture? How are we not just another weird niche group of people doing whatever we do on our own? Here's what I want to suggest to you is distinctive about the Christian subculture and the counterculture that we're creating. It loves like Jesus, is full of the Holy Spirit, and therefore serves the common good. A genuinely Christian counterculture is going to love like Jesus, look like Jesus, follow Jesus. It's going to be sharing in the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had, full of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, just like Jesus did, it's going to serve the common good. And just like Jesus was misunderstood and sometimes hated, so too are we going to be misunderstood and hated. But everything that we do as Jesus people 
is for the common good. Even if we're saying no to something in the larger culture, it's there to serve the larger yes. No to that in order that the people around us might know yes to God's grace, God's love, God's wisdom, God's truth, God's justice, God's righteousness. Everything that Jesus' followers do is for the common good, whether or not the people around us accept it or, or believe it or agree with us. We're not looking for a fight. We're not looking to sort of be smug or arrogant or self-righteous, look how great we are. We are looking to follow Jesus, full of the Spirit, in order to serve the larger common good. This is one of the hardest parts about being a Christian and one of the most important parts of being a Christian. What does it mean to be against the flow as we follow Jesus for the common good? We're going to spend the next six weeks talking about that, and by the end of six weeks, we'll have it all figured out. All done. What we're hoping to do with these next six weeks is start the right conversations. Help us as a community to understand what does it mean for us to be going against the flow as we follow Jesus, as we take up our cross and follow Jesus. What does it mean to be against the flow of culture for the common good? How do we actually live this out on a regular, daily, as a community, together, as a church, and then on an individual basis? How does this actually work itself out? Now today, we're going to start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. We're going to go back to the very beginning of the church. Because the church from its very beginning, woven into the DNA, was to be a counterculture for the common good. This was what the whole thing was started with and was woven in. But you've got to understand the backdrop and the history of it. So we're going to do a short jaunt into history, okay? Some of you are going to love this. Like five of you love history. The rest of you just stay awake for the next six minutes, okay? So we're going to go back to 100 BC, okay? 100 BC, Rome is ruled as a Senate, kind of a, this big Senate, a bunch, basically a bunch of rich white guys who are ruling in the Senate, who are like, but they're elected, right? So they have a kind of a, something of a democracy. They're ruling everything. But at about 100 BC, it's a little bit shaky. There's been some civil war attempts. There's been some assassinations. And there's a little bit of a vacuum of power. And of course, anytime there's a vacuum, someone's going to step up to fill that vacuum. Enter Julius Caesar. You may have heard of him. About 60 BC, Caesar and a group of a couple other people start to form sort of this triumvirate that are, making, that are really powerful in the Senate. And as Caesar kind of grows and gets more powerful, he becomes sort of a military leader. And he leads a whole succession of tremendous military victories, vastly expanding the Roman Empire. The people love him. The crowds love him. And when Julius Caesar arrives in the Eastern Mediterranean, he begins to pick up a series of very important nicknames. The, one of the first nicknames Julius Caesar gets is God and Savior, because here was someone who's going to finally save us from the chaos. Here was someone who's going to rescue us from the uncertainty of political strife and civil war. Caesar is hailed, first nickname, God and Savior. He keeps winning more and more battles. The military starts to really love Caesar. The Senate gets really nervous about how popular he's getting. So the Senate says, stand down, come back to Rome, and rejoin the Senate as one of us. Caesar says, no thank you. He crosses the Rubicon, and he leads his very own civil war. How great is that? You have your own civil war named after you. That's a cool thing. So you have Caesar's civil war that starts, uh, when is that? That starts, uh, well, around 45 BC, he, he finishes the civil war. He's unchallenged in his power. And as he's unchallenged in his power, his, his nicknames and his titles continue to grow. He consolidates all this power. He, he, he makes a whole new calendar, his birthday. So happy birthday, Caesar. It's a national holiday. And he establishes all these things. And he's so beloved by the crowds and the people. Eventually, he's proclaimed dictator for life. How would you like that for a title, dictator for life? Moms everywhere are like, yes, if only I could have that kind of power with my kids. Dictator for life. And, and eventually, he becomes divine Caesar. Caesar the divine, sent from God. Eventually, there would even be temples 
made to his name, declaring Caesar is divine. Caesar is Lord. Now, all this love and all this popularity angered the other senators. So eventually he's assassinated, right? Et tu, Brute. Brutus assassinates him with some other senators. And a new series of civil wars breaks out. And his adopted nephew, Octavian, emerges victorious in that civil war. And a decade or so later, after he emerges victorious, one of, the, one of Caesar's temples says, Hey, Octavian, can we give you a new nickname? Because you saved us from civil war. Can we call you Deliverer and Savior? Later, he's called Caesar Augustus, is declared deliverer and savior because he delivered them from the chaos of civil war and saved them from all that had gone on. Octavian likes to play into this whole worship of the Caesar thing. And so he goes back to one of those temples for Caesar. And he says, listen, Caesar was of divine origin. He says he was the son of divinity, the son of God. Hail Caesar, son of God. Hail Caesar, God, savior. Deliver. Any of those titles sound familiar? And a new refrain starts to circulate around the whole Roman Empire. And here's the refrain. Here's the mantra. It's all over the place. Caesar is Lord. That's the mantra of the Holy Roman Empire, of the Roman Empire, not so holy yet, pagan Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. It's pictures all over the place. It's pictures everywhere in courthouses and military and on tribunals on the streets. People are beloved by him. He is, he is the son of the divinity. His name's on the coins. His picture's on the coins. It is everywhere. And when Caesar Augustus dies, he's followed by a string of losers. Here are the, here's, here's the loser emperors that follow Caesar Augustus. He is alive till uh, 31 BC to 14 AD. So Jesus is born right during Caesar Augustus's reign. And then you have Tiberius, who's a disaster, 14 through 37. Caligula, 37 to 41, even more of a disaster. Claudius, 41 to 54. And Nero, 54 to 68, who enjoys burning Christians at the stake. And this is the time when Jesus is alive. This is when the church is getting started. This is when the, the New Testament letters, almost all of them are being written during this time. And by then, the divinity of the Caesars is front and center in the culture. It is just normative. Caesar is divine. Julius Caesar especially was, was a god or godlike status. And everyone who follows him is a son of the divine, the son of the gods. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. This is actually on the, on the back of the coins. This is during Caesar Tiberius' uh, like, uh, reign. Is, here's the Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So this is what's dominating the landscape of Jesus' day. This is what's dominating the landscape as Paul sits down to, to start to write his letters. Caesar is Lord is the refrain of the whole empire. It's what everyone believes. It's how everyone lives and worships. It's how the whole Roman Empire thrives. So Paul sits down to write a thank you note to the Philippians. And in this thank you note, he's thanking them because they've, they've collected a bunch of money to help out the Jerusalem church. They were poor and they were hungry. And the church of Philippi, uh, the Philippi sent a bunch of money to Jerusalem. So Paul wants to write them a thank you note. And as Paul sits down to write his thank you note with Caesar as Lord all in the background and with the whole kind of Roman Empire shaped by the culture of the Caesars, Paul is audacious to say to the church of Jesus Christ, you are going to be a counterculture for the common good. And here's, here are his ridiculous, audacious instructions and his ridiculous, audacious refrain as he writes Philippians 2. Here's the call to the Christian community, Philippians 2. He writes this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. A, uh, a friend of mine, super sharp, met, knew him, met him in college, and uh, he graduated from college and got like, a low-level management job in a big company in a cutthroat industry. And the, the, the culture of the whole company very much mirrored the cutthroatness of the industry. It was a lot of politics. It was a lot of kind of jockeying for position. It was a lot of sort of, uh, sort of doing what you can to get by, sometimes, sometimes sort of shading the numbers to make things look better, overselling, underdelivering. That was sort of the culture he was in. And what he decided was, in his little sort of management department, he was going to create a subculture of Jesus-style flourishing. He was going to manage his little department the way that Jesus would as best he could. He tried to absorb all the larger toxicity from the environment and the larger environmental and the, the corporate culture. He's going to absorb that as much as he could, and he was going to run his sort of corporation, his little department, as faithfully as he knew how. And at first, the people around him didn't know what he was doing. They didn't understand it. They weren't sure they could trust it. They, Is this guy for real? Is it serious? But eventually, trust began to be built. And eventually, he, his department over-delivered over and over and over again, and his sphere of influence grew and grew and grew. And he's been with that same company over 25 years now, and now he's the head of the company. And a corporation that was once a toxic environment to go work in now is a great place to work because he started with the small little sphere of influence where he created a sphere of Jesus-style managing that actually helped people to flourish and grow. And now the whole company is a healthy, thriving environment because he's running the Jesus operating system right there in that space. Created a little subculture, a counter subculture for the sake of the common good. This is something of what is happening throughout the entire New Testament church. The whole New Testament church is an experiment. Can we create niches, subcultures, that look very different from the world around us to serve this common good? So Paul opens the passage we just read with a series of sort of statements about things that they have experienced. He knows they've experienced. They've had these experiences. Paul says, listen, if you have any comfort, any encouragement from being united with Christ, and Paul knows they have because he was there when that whole thing happened. Hey, if you've experienced this encouragement, if you've got comfort from Jesus' love, if you have a common sharing in this Holy Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion, he says, listen, all this grace has been poured out on you. You've experienced the tenderness, the compassion, the love, right? He opens with this beautiful thing of like, here's what's going to nest. Here's what's going to fuel my commands. Because here's the deal. From, from these experiences, Paul's going to lay out some prescriptions. And if you didn't notice, ain't none of this natural. Not a thing that Paul says they should do is natural or normal for any of us. Look, check this out. Look at this. Be like-minded. Got that? Have the same love. Check. Be one in spirit and of one mind. Okay, how about this one? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Not here. Not a problem here, right? In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. How many of you got that already? Check, check, check. Good. None of this is normal or natural for any of us. Not individually, not for us corporately. This is the counterculture for the common good. This is one way it looks. And here's the deal. When it's happening, it looks like nothing else. It looks like nothing else. Nothing else in human history. Nothing else looks the like the church does when the church is operating the way that Jesus called us to. There's a reason why it looks like nothing else, because it's not natural or intuitive. None of us would build a community that looked like this if it was up to us. You have to learn it. Someone has to teach it to us. Someone has to show us what it looks like. 
And then we have to rechoose it and rechoose it and rechoose it over and over and over again. That's how you get to be a counterculture for the common good. Someone teaches you it, someone shows you what it looks like, and then you choose it over and over and over again. But before we get to all that, let's, let's put a stake in the ground and celebrate really good news. Again, there are almost no naked commands in the Bible. Amen? No nakedness in the Bible. No naked commands in the Bible, which means, listen, every time there's a command, there's either a promise to claim that's attached to it, right? There's no naked commands in the Bible. There's a promise that goes with it, or it's nested in a larger context of who God is and what God has done. So it's really, really important to understand, to look at this whole thing, that if you just take these counterculture commands, no self-interest, not selfish ambition, not bank conceit, then you just get lost in it. Or to put it another way, counterintuitive, unnatural, counterculture for the common good is fueled by grace, 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 and more grace. Grace comes first. God's love comes first. The only way you and I have the power the energy or the motivation to do anything different from the world around us for the long haul and to create a community where we're doing this for long haul is if it's built on and knows and has experienced the grace of Christ, the power of God, the love of God poured out into us. My friends, if you wrench these commands out of context, just be like, all right, nothing about selfish ambition, no, uh, no vacancy, humility, consider others better than themselves. All you've got is a list of more religious rules. Who needs more of that? No one needs more religious rules. The world doesn't need more religious rules. You, you'll either be a really, really proud, smug Pharisee, or you'll give up on the whole thing. It's just too hard. Grace comes first. The Holy Spirit comes first. So let me say it here at the outset of the series. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know God's grace, we're so glad you're here. Today's your day. You're in the right place. If you're here this morning, don't yet know God's grace. Far from it, drifting from it, never known it. Welcome home. You're in the right place. Mercy and a grace is available to you today. I want to implore you, open your heart. Let Jesus pour his grace and mercy and love into your heart to change that heart, to open you up to new life, new love. He's done it for billions of people before you. He can do it in your life too, that you too might experience comfort from his love, a sharing in this common Holy Spirit, this encouragement, this joy of being united with Christ. The rest of the passage tells us why we should bother with this. Why should we do this? Why should we even bother with it? Why, why should we continue to, to walk in this way? Why should we, we should be open to change? Because change is hard, it's not easy. Why should we, open, should we be open to change? And so Paul here moves to quote probably one of the oldest hymns in the early church where Paul kind of unpacks and unfolds, sort of declares and sings out this hymn. And this hymn has two parts. The first part is the descending journey down. The second part is the ascending journey up. So let's read just the descending journey. Here's why and how we should have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Paul writes this, in your relationships with one another, have that same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That, my friends, is the journey down. From equality with God all the way to death on the cross, one of the most shameful sort of ways to die in, in, uh, in the New Testament era, in the Roman era, that's the path that Jesus voluntarily walks to wash away our sin, for to give your sin and my sin for you and for me. 
Jesus goes to the cross with a promise from God in his heart. Here's what the father promised. If you will lay your life down for the sins of the whole world, if you will sacrifice yourself for the sins of the whole world, the father promises, I will lift you out of that grave. And not only will I lift you out of the grave, I'll lift you and everyone that puts their faith in you. I will bring them out of the grave too along with you. Everyone who trusts in you, Jesus, will be raised from the grave, will be pulled out of the grave, will be attached to you as I pull you and a whole chain of people for, for thousands of years along with you. If you go to the cross... I promise I will raise you from the dead. Jesus wrestles with this promise and this call his whole life. Moments before he's arrested, he's wrestling with the father. Is there any other way? And father, the father says, there is no other way. Choose. What are you going to do? You're going to surrender to the cross? Or are you going to choose a different path? Jesus chooses to trust the father. He chooses to believe the Father's promise that if he lays his life down, the Father will raise him back up again. But it's a choice he has to make, and he chooses to obey all the way down to death on a cross. The second half of the hymn that Paul quotes is the ascending journey. What does God do? What does God do when Jesus obeys the Father all the way to death? He does exactly what he promised he would do. He does this. Because Jesus was faithful to God the Father, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name above every name at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. My friends, how do you know you can trust God? Because Jesus did, and God came through. The same Father that raised Jesus from the dead, followed through on his promise, will follow through on his promises to you, to raise you from the dead as well. I love nerdy podcasts, True Confessions. I love nerdy podcasts, all kinds of nerdy podcasts. Uh, and one of my nerdy podcasts loves is uh, leadership podcasts. So if, you're ever, if you ever suffer through or nerdy organizational leadership podcasts like I do, one mantra that comes up on the regularly is that what gets celebrated gets repeated. What gets celebrated gets repeated, right? That's why you're in a company. People celebrate, you know, highest sales, best customer service ratings. People, the, the, the managers, the leaders want people to replicate, to reproduce. What gets celebrated gets repeated. They want to highlight, spotlight, and say, look like that, follow in that way. My friends, here's the, here's the thing. Throughout the Roman Empire, the celebrated refrain was, Caesar is Lord. That's what was celebrated. Caesar. His birthday was a national holiday. His face was everywhere, his, on the coins, all that kind of thing. Caesar is Lord. He's God. He's son of the divine. How did Caesar get to be Lord? Power, politics, scheming, killing off enemies, assertion, dominance, vainglory, self-interest, agenda. What kind of people, what kind of culture does it produce because what gets celebrated gets repeated. If you're celebrating Caesar, how Caesar got to be Lord, what kind of people does that produce? People who love power, who love dominance, who are aggressive, assertive. This was pagan Roman culture. Dominance, assertion, power, scheming, politics. Because what gets celebrated gets repeated. Those are the values. And then along comes the church. Along comes Paul. And you know what? Paul has the audacity to declare. He sees that motto. He says, you know what? Caesar is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And all of Rome says, no way. We know what a Lord looks like. We know what a Lord looks like. It looks like Caesar. And that guy on the cross doesn't look anything like a Caesar. And, and Paul says, exactly, 100%. That is nothing like how Caesar got to be Lord. There's a different way, a better way, a life-giving way to become Lord. His name is Jesus. And in a culture 
that celebrated power, dominance, ego, ambition. Paul has the audacity to say there's a different way. Jesus Christ is Lord. Who is Lord, my friends? Who is Lord? Who is Lord? This is the motto for the whole series. The whole series, Counterculture for the Common Good. The whole thing is built around the good news. Jesus Christ is Lord, no matter who else claims it, no matter what else is vying for it. Jesus Christ is Lord. And we're going to work that out for the next five weeks. Jesus Christ is Lord. What does that mean for us in our own lives? What does it mean for us as a church culturally? And how did he get to be Lord? How did he get to be Lord? Not the way the Caesars did. He got to be Lord by laying down his life, walking you to obedience to the Father, humbly, graciously, crazily, recklessly trusting God all the way to his last breath, and Jesus was raised from the dead to be declared Lord by God himself. The king has come. He wears the victor's crown. What gets celebrated gets repeated. You worship Caesar as Lord, you become like a Caesar. You worship Jesus as Lord, you become like Jesus. You learn from Jesus. Because my friends, here's the deal. Caesars are a dime a dozen. Every generation, every culture, there's more and more Caesars, a proliferation of Caesars. You can pick any one of any number of Caesars to worship, and none of them look like Jesus. All of them will shape you. I love tech gadgets. I'm a tech gadget guy. If I had all the money in the world, I would buy all the tech gadgets in the world. Amen? Yeah. Nothing wrong with tech gadgets. But here's the deal, if I am spending more money on tech gadgets than I can actually afford, I'm offering a sacrifice to a Caesar of technology. If you buy a house you can't actually afford, you're offering a sacrifice to a Caesar of what you look like to the neighbors. You buy a car you can't actually afford, you buy a boat you can't actually afford, you buy anything that you can't actually afford, you are making a sacrifice to a Caesar. Zooming out from my own love of gadgets individually, here's the deal, there's a religion in our culture that loves technology, a, a, a rabid fan base. We don't need God, we just need technology. Technology's gonna solve all our problems, right? Technology's gonna solve all our problems. In fact, there's, you know, there's, there's people at Alphabet, Google, Facebook saying, listen, we're gonna figure out a way to make you live forever. We're gonna put your brain in like a floating formaldehyde thing, and we're gonna build a cyborg, and your consciousness can live forever. Wouldn't that be great? And there are people, listen, there are people who dismiss the Jesus story because that's their Caesar. That's their Lord. Technology is going to save us. We don't need anything. We don't need spiritual stuff. We don't need Jesus. We don't need God. We just need more technology. And as Jesus people, we say thank you to technology because it's a great gift in its place. But when technology is Lord, it's a bully like every other Lord is whenever it gets power. Jesus Christ is Lord, not technology. Jesus Christ is Lord, not money. Jesus Christ is Lord, not politics, whatever your political persuasion is. Jesus Christ is Lord, not our own comfort. Jesus Christ is Lord, not our own, not our own autonomy. Jesus Christ is Lord, not what other people think about you. Jesus Christ is Lord, and there's all kinds of Caesars pulling at you, all kinds of lords, all kinds of pressures, and subcultures, and subcultures, and counter subcultures that are pulling at you, all kinds of voices in your head and in the culture. There's always been a sea of Caesars to choose from. You follow them, you become like them, because what gets celebrated gets repeated. You follow Jesus, you look like nothing else in the world. Because no one else looks like him in the world. One of the most important Caesars you get to battle against, one of the most important lords you get to battle against, is inside of you. Because here's one, of the, here's one of the biggest cultural mantras, follow your heart. Ever, anyone heard that one before? Like I have a cat poster on your 
like a classroom, like follow your heart, be one of these people, right? Here's the deal. I, I, I don't know how to tell it to you. You follow your heart at every moment of the day, you're going to be a train wreck, disaster. Which heart are you going to follow? Which impulse? Overeat, undereat, not eat enough, eat too much, exercise, don't exercise. Talk to that person, don't talk to that person. Which you are you supposed to be? Which version of your heart are you supposed to follow? My friends, listen, listen, listen. As Jesus followers, we don't follow our heart. We follow Jesus who shapes our hearts. And certainly there's elements of who you're going to be and who you're going to become. But listen, who you become as you follow Jesus is a totally different person than who you become if you're just following your heart. So the biggest tyrant you're going to have to battle against is inside you. And say, okay, Lord, I want to follow you, not just my own heart. Here are the desires of my heart. I'm going to surrender these to you. Shape them, mold them, guide them, however you want to. Jesus is Lord. Not your heart, not my heart, not your flesh, not my flesh, not the political, not, not, the, not, not the election cycle coming up, not whatever kind of TV news, whatever, not, not, whatever, not any sports team, not any hobby. Jesus Christ is Lord. My friends, in a world where Paul declares, well, that was declaring Caesar is Lord, it sure looked like it, right? Caesar is Lord, it looked like it to the Romans. Then, 2,000 years ago, if you were a Roman, you'd be like, of course Caesar is Lord. It sure looks like it. Paul says, no, Jesus Christ is Lord, to which people say it doesn't look like it. Here's a small ragtag group of people. No one cares about you. You have no power, no influence. Let me tell you something, my friends. 2,000 years later, Rome is gone. Caesars are gone. The Church of Jesus Christ, 2,000 years later, goes on and on and on and on. Because who's the real Lord? Who's the real Lord? Who is the real Lord in the world? It wasn't Caesar. And it's not tech. It's not your politics. It's not your money. Not your comfort. Who's the real Lord? Only Jesus Christ is the real world. You tie yourself to him, you live forever. You tie yourself to any other Lord, you die with it. We're going to move now, just a minute, to celebrate the story of Jesus. As we, we're going to take communion every Sunday throughout this whole series to declare Jesus Christ is Lord. Because what gets celebrated gets repeated. So we're going to celebrate the ways that Jesus became Lord all throughout the course of this series. And we're going to come back to it again and again and again. But before we come to these tables, I just want to invite you to do a little Caesar inventory, a little lordship inventory. The question I want to give you just a minute to reflect on is can you name and surrender any other influence in your life over to the Lord? All of us have got lords and Caesars that call at us that we kind of are drawn to, right? Your Caesars are different than my Caesars. There's, there's dozens and dozens to choose from. You're going you're gonna to be drawn to something. And listen, there's no, there's no shame in that. That's just part of what it means to be human. You're going to be drawn to these things that are pulling you away from Jesus. But many of them operate contrary to Jesus, sometimes obviously and clearly, sometimes in more subtle ways. What are the other influences that have real estate? What are you sacrificing? Time, money, energy, thought? What has real estate in your heart and your mind? that is contrary to the way of Jesus or is battling for supremacy over and against Jesus. I'm going to give you one minute of silence to at least surface that before God and do what you can to offer that to the Lord. And if you're willing to actually lay that at his feet, it frees you up with open hands to come to this table to receive the good news that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. Amen. Take a minute now to do a little work before the Lord, before we move into communion. Take a minute to pray.
Lord Jesus, we give you these other lords, these other influences, these things that pull at us. We lay them at your feet. Pray for my friends who are here who aren't sure they believe that you're Lord. I pray that they might hear the good news, the invitation to a more durable Lord, not a Caesar or Lord that's passing or that feels powerful now, but that would really set them free to live lives of faith, hope, love, to be a counterculture for the common good. Come, Lord Jesus. Pull back the curtain. Show us who, Lord, who is really Lord. And let us inhabit the story. Inhabit your grace. Walk in your ways as we receive the meal together. Amen. In the place of that Lord's story, that Caesar story, we invite you to this table. On the night Jesus was betrayed, as he's wrestling over what's to come, after the Passover meal, he takes bread and he breaks it and says, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he takes the cup. He says, this cup is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. What gets celebrated gets repeated. He wants his followers 2,000 years later to learn and learn and learn the way of Jesus because it's not natural. It's counterintuitive. Nothing else looks like it. So there's an invitation for us to step into that story and to celebrate it together. We're going to move now to a time of communion. We're going to, the band's going to play a song. We're going to have these, we have three stations, two up front, one in the back. The bread is gluten-free. The cup is grape juice, so everyone's invited. We're going to invite you to come up front to grab the elements and then take them back to your seat to let the, the song we're going to sing is actually going to rehearse the story of what God has done in Jesus. We're going to celebrate his story. We're going to remember it. And then we're going to remember the meal he gave us. My friends, hear the good news. Jesus Christ is Lord. We remember and celebrate his story that it might shape us. This table belongs to Jesus. If you belong to him, then you belong to this table. If you're not yet a Jesus person, we're so glad you're here. We just invite you to pass and reflect on this story and reflect on the invitation before you to open up your heart and your life to receive this marvelous grace. Let me pray for us one more time as we move to a time of communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for these gifts of grace. We pray that they would help us, awaken in us the good news of your majestic love for us and your sacrifice for us. Help us, Lord, to engage with this with open hearts, open minds, open spirits, that we might be shaped as we repeat this story. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.